And we have with us tonight a very special guest. His name is Deacon Joe Leach. Now, Deacon Joe is a planetary geologist, and his curriculum vitae is quite impressive. So excuse me while I refer to uh, my phone, and I'm going to read out some highlights. Now, Deacon Joe did his PhD in geomorphology of the Martian North Pole, North Polar Ice Cap. Now, I believe that was also part of a NASA investigation. So Deacon Joe has had experience doing some research with NASA. Um, following uh, that PhD, uh, Deacon Joe took up some various positions, um, including at the CSIRO, um, doing some work with satellite imaging technology, um, and even working as an intelligence officer with the Royal Australian Air Force. Deacon Joe also um, did some lecturing and teaching work at various universities and colleges, and is very well written. I believe around 80 um, academic uh, works has been published, um, but also Deacon Joe has done a fair bit of uh, writing in poetry, um, in uh, fantasy and in science fiction. So quite, quite well written and very um, skilled and um, talented individual. In 2003, um, Deacon Joe began studies in theology, so combined his scientific background and merged that with theology and was ordained a deacon in 2012. So with us tonight um, to talk on the topic of um, faith and science, our place in the universe, and I believe there'll be terms like Goldilocks and Copernicus mentioned, but that will make a lot more sense as the night goes on. Please give a very warm welcome to Deacon Joe Lynch. very kind introduction. My title for the talk that I suggested was Goldilocks meets the Copernicus Principle, but the um, organisers decided for a more sober and adult title, so that's really good. But what I'd like to do first is start off with a reading from the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord, the creator of heaven, he is God who shaped the earth and made it, who set it firm. He did not create it in vain. He made it to be lifted. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in some dark place. I did not say, search for me in vain. Now that reading from Isaiah encapsulates a lot of the Christian understanding of our place in the world and our understanding of creation. Specifically, creation was made with a purpose. It has meaning and purpose and significance. And it has meaning and purpose and significance, which means that we also, our lives, have meaning, purpose and significance. This is very different from the view that you will hear from a lot of people. People who will say that their view is scientific. And we'll get on to exactly how scientific it is later on in the talk. But I would like to actually address the opposite of Isaiah, if you like. And I'm going to um, use a quote from another prophet, or an anti-prophet, if you like, Stephen Hawkins. <laughs> 
and I quote, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate sized planet ordering around an average sized star in the outer suburb of one galaxy among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant. You can see that they're two radically different views of the universe and humanity's place within it. But the, that view, I mean, that, that's actually a... I mean, Stephen Hawking's places it a very extreme language, but that view is very common. And you will see it expressed in all sorts of books, including in textbooks, in textbooks in, um, given to school children. And it will be presented as if it is science. It is not science. Okay? And it is not scientific. It is an extrapolation on the basis of a very sceptical, <coughs> rationalist and reductionist philosophy which grew up in the 18th and 19th centuries. It has no connection to science. It's actually dishonest to suggest that it is. So what I want to do today is actually to look at how does that view match up against science? How does it match up against what we actually know about the universe, our planet, and our place within it? So science does have some things to say about this. First of all, let's have a look at all these claims. So, it is one of billions of galaxies. Yep, that's true. There are billions of galaxies. Um, there is a wonderful picture from the Hubble Space Telescope Far Field Camera where you have this field which looks like stars, but each of the little dots is actually a galaxy. Beautiful, wonderful. It's also kind of beside the point. It actually doesn't tell us very much. We'll get on to the argument of hundreds of galaxies a bit later. But I'll just say at the moment, say it actually doesn't tell us much. It's true, but it doesn't tell us very much. Okay, so this next claim, that we're only on the outer arm of the galaxy, the outer suburbs of the galaxy, he said. Yeah, well, actually, of course we are. The centre of our galaxy has this massive black hole. Believe me, you don't want to live anywhere near that thing. Okay? It's only in the outer arm of the galaxy that you have stable stars and planetary systems where life could possibly form. So again, yes, it's true, that's where we are, but what's the meaning of that? You know, the outer suburbs are actually not bad places to live. <laughs> Next, we're around an average star. Well, that's interesting. Our star is one of the main sequence stars. So it's not a red giant or a brown dwarf, it's a main sequence star. Again, that's kind of good because that means it's stable. If it weren't one of these main sequence stars, we wouldn't be here. Again, you see, these things he's saying, look, this is just average, but it's not. What it is, is stable. It's stable because we need that stability in order to live. If it were not stable, we would not be here. So we are being placed in 
the place where we need to be. Now, we get to the really interesting thing. A moderate-sized planet. Now, the implication in that is that the Earth is kind of average. There's nothing special about the Earth. This is a statement of the Copernicus Principle. You may have come across the Copernicus Principle, and it is the idea that there is nothing special about the Earth. Now, it comes, of course, from, it gets its name, I should say, from the work of Nicholas Copernicus, who was, incidentally, a Augustinian canon of the of Freiburg Cathedral, who pointed out that mathematically, it's the Earth is not the centre of our solar system, the Sun is. Extrapolating from that, you get the Copernicus principle. There is nothing special about the Earth. And that's where Stephen Hawkins is operating from. There is nothing special about the Earth. Deriving from that, he gets the idea, because there's nothing special about the Earth, there's nothing special about us. There is no significance, there is no meaning to human existence. A bit of a leap I know, but that's the leap he's made, he and others. Well, let's have a look at that statement. There is nothing special about the Earth. How did our Earth form? Well, let's, no, actually, right before we get to that, let's go and consider how our Earth compares to other planets that we know of, to other solar systems that we know of. Now, owing to the Kepler telescope and to the Kepler Space Telescope, we now actually know quite a lot about solar systems other than our own, around other stars. Before we knew that, people would guess that around maybe 20% of main sequence yellow stars like our sun would have planets like the Earth in the habitable zone. We now know that that is less than 4%. Okay, so average size planet, well, no, 96% of solar systems don't have, of even the right sort of solar system, don't have the right sort of planet. So even just on sheer numbers that Hawkins should be aware of, the Earth is not average. The Earth is in, you know, if, if the Earth were a student in Victoria, the school would be very happy to have him graduate. Because <laughs> he'd be right up there. So the Earth is not an average planet. But given that, that it's inside the habitable zone, our solar system is kind of strange. Because our solar system doesn't just have the Earth inside the habitable zone. It has at least three planets inside the habitable zone, and some people would argue it has five depending on your definitions. Of those various bodies, only one is habitable. So the Earth is actually kind of special. Why? This gets us back to how the Earth was formed. When, we, when the Apollo missions went to the moon, they were testing out various ways, various theories about how the moon might have formed. I won't bore you with the various theories they were testing because all of them were wrong. And the rocks brought back from Apollo proved they were all wrong. The Earth formed when a body called the Proto-Earth 
collided with another body about the size of the planet Mars. And it collided in such a way that the core, the heavy iron core of the Mars body, merged with the core of the Earth body, and a little bit of it flew off and formed our moon. Okay? That ha collision had to happen in a particular way. If it happened in a, most ways, the two bodies just scatter and become small asteroids. The chance of that happening is so small that the Earth in its current form is likely to be unique in the galaxy. Okay. Now this is planetary geology and it may be beneath Stephen Hawkins um, to consider it, but nonetheless, this is what science tells us. The Earth as a planet is quite probably unique in the galaxy. Now what unique features does this formation give us? Well, it gives the Earth a very large iron core, much larger than you would expect for the size of a planet. That's important. Why? Because the iron core in our planet does a lot of things. One of the things it does is give us a very strong magnetic field. We have a strong magnetic field which protects us from solar radiation. If you're on Mars, you have to see some other way of protecting yourself from solar radiation because it's a serious problem. On Earth, we don't have to worry. We have this strong magnetic field. The strong magnetic field, um, or the Earth, the iron core, also drives plate tectonics. Now, for those of you who have done some geology, you'll know that our planet is made up of tectonic plates which constantly move around the surface. They move around the surface because they're being driven by the heat inside the planet. And that heat inside the planet comes from all the radioactive elements and the residual heat of its formation. And it has to get out. That heat has to get out. And so plate tectonics, the heat comes out through various cracks. On Venus, Venus doesn't have plate tectonics, it doesn't have the same big iron core. And Venus, the heat can't get out, and every now and then, Venus just completely erupts and resurfaces its entire surface. And you have these massive volcanic eruptions. You don't want to be there when that happens. Actually, you don't want to be on Venus at all. <laughs> Mars, on the other hand, is too small, and its iron core so ours is still molten and still has this electric dynamo running in its centre. Mars is froze. That means its magnetic field died. Not only then does Mars have radiation on its surface, but its atmosphere is eroded by the solar wind. So Mars once had a much thicker atmosphere, but over time it's been eroded away because it's called froze. The Earth because it has this much larger core, protects us from radiation and lets off this heat gradually in a controlled sort of way. Also, we have a moon. It is very rare. It is 
something counter to all of our planetary formation models that a terrestrial planet like ours should have a moon. But we have a moon because of this really unlikely collision right at the beginning of our formation. What does that moon have to do with, the, with life on Earth? We don't know. We don't know for a very good reason because we have no idea how life started. Okay, we have none. People tell you they know, we have no idea how life started. Some people have suggested, however, that tidal pools might be one place where it started. We may suggest that because tidal pools are where we find the most primitive forms of life currently existing. Well, if that's true, those tidal pools are there because of the moon. Now, what all of this, what I'm trying to get to you is that the Earth has all of these wonders attached to it. It is an amazing place. It is a place unlikely to be repeated anywhere else. To describe it simply as an average sized planet is, um, well, let's say inadequate at best. And I think it's a, it's a case where the certain way of thinking in science has actually blinded people to looking at things as they are. And this is important because the scientific view would actually present all of this information. The scientific view would say, hang on, the Earth is an important, unique place in the universe. If the Earth is a unique and important place in the universe, then maybe it has some significance. Maybe it has some meaning. And maybe that meaning has something to do with us. So this is called the Goldilocks effect. That the Earth seems to be a planet designed to produce life and to sustain it. It's almost as if someone designed a planet where life could be and life could thrive. A planet which had protected its surface from solar radiation, a planet which got rid of its heat in a controlled way, a planet which was in the right zone for liquid water to exist on the surface. All of these things. It's a Goldilocks planet. A planet that is almost designed to, to uh, help life thrive. Not just exist, but thrive on its surface. Of course, for a Goldilocks planet to exist, it must be in a universe where such things can exist. And I'm not a cosmologist, I'm a geologist, but I know that our universe, all of the constants, all of the basic forces of our universe are in fine balance. And they're in that fine balance between chaos on one side where nothing can exist, and stability on the other, where things can exist but nothing can develop. Everything is static. But our universe is on that fine boundary between the two. And it's on that fine boundary between the two that things like the Earth can be. 
So we don't just live on a Goldilocks planet. We live in a Goldilocks universe. A universe that was almost as if it's designed to produce life. Let's go back to Isaiah. Did not make it in vain. He made it to be lived in. Now, people will respond. Well, I'm sure Hawkins would respond. I'm going to. I'm not going to do a Hawkins impression, but <laughs> I'm not that tiny. I'm going to. I'm, I'm sure Hawkins would respond by saying, of course, the planet that we live on is looks like it's designed for life because we're alive. Yeah. Of course, the universe in which we live looks like it's designed for life because we're here. If it were not, we would not be here. The question would not be asked. Yeah. Uh, this is predicated on a couple of things. One is that there are multiple opportunities. There are other things that could have happened. That's probably true for the planet. The universe, the name suggests there's only one. Now this comes, they'll come back with the idea of the multiverse. Now let me, okay, rant warning. <laughs> the multiverse is a load of <laughs> the It comes about precisely because of this problem. And people are saying, well, how is the universe like it is? Surely there are other possibilities. And indeed there are. There are far more possibilities where life is impossible than there is this one possibility where life is possible. So, surely, you know, there are lots of these universes. Well, for a start, I'm a, sorry, but I'm not a physicist, I'm a scientist. And I'm an empiricist. And I like to see the evidence. And not only is there no evidence for multiple universes, they are divined, designed in such a way that there can be no evidence. This offends me as a scientist, let me tell you, that there is something that not only is, is postulated, that not only is uh, has no evidence, but I can't even dream of finding a way to test it. Um, Niels Bohr would talk about, about another theory which had the same properties, uh, string theory, and he said, it's not even wrong. <laughs> to be wrong, well, that's something, but this is not even wrong. He <laughs> said, this is, again, not science. It is a speculation based on a philosophical idea, parading as science. Now, even in the multiverse, which gives you lots of universes, and so, and it also offends a lot of rules of physics. What happened to conservation of matter and energy? What happened to the laws of thermodynamics? Anyway, <laughs> physics should know about that. But even if you accept there are multiple universes, it doesn't actually solve the problem. Their problem is to try and make the Earth and human life insignificant, where it looks like it's special. It looks like not only is it so special, it looks like the universe was designed to bring it about. Even Paul Davies, who's 
the very atheistic physicist commented on the universe that it looks like a put-up job. <laughs> the multiverse is their way around us. But even if you accept the multiverse, it actually doesn't do that. Because all you end up with is a more complicated universe. And you have exactly the same problem which starts right at the beginning. We have a universe. We have a multiverse. I don't care. We have a universe in which a planet like the Earth can exist. We have a planet like the Earth on which life can not only exist but can thrive. We have a planet like the Earth where creatures like ourselves can come to awareness. This is a miracle. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many universes or how many planets there are or how many galaxies there are. This one exists. We exist here and now. And we can look at the Earth and see how beautiful and how wonderful creation is. It doesn't matter how much rock you have to dig through to get that one perfect diamond. That one perfect diamond is still beautiful. And all the rock you had to dig through was just there to form that one perfect diamond. So yeah, there are billions of galaxies. There have to be billions of galaxies because there has to be ours. There are thousands of planets, maybe not thousands of suitable planets, but thousands of planets. There has to be, because there has to be one which is ours. And maybe, pure speculation and fantasy, but maybe there are thousands of universes. Same thing applies. There has to be, because there has to be that one which is designed to bring forth life, which is ours. Not made in vain, made to be lived in. See, now you can see how God has crafted, crafted such a special place for us. So that we are here. Why? Well, for a start, I would like to say that we are part of this universe. We're part of this planet. In us, this universe is able to be aware of itself and its creator and is able to give conscious and vocal vocalize the praise which all of the universe gives simply by its nature. Trees, mountains, valleys, hills, praise God simply by what they are. But they're not aware of it. They have no consciousness. We do. And we can see the praise that nature gives to God and we can voice it. This is part of our mission. This is part of who we are. This is part of the significance of our own lives. 
Um, I wanted to ask how I'm going for time now. Because I want to briefly broach on the idea of alien life. Life on other planets. And I'd like to start off by saying that despite what some people would claim, there is no particular theological problem for a Christian with life on other planets. Can God create life on another planet? Well, of course he can, he's God. <laughs> he can do whatever he likes. Are there other planets in the galaxy? I'm not talking about other galaxies because they're so far away we'll never know anything about it, that's irrelevant. Are there other planets in the galaxies where life might form? Oh, maybe, yeah, sure. The Earth is special, but it's there are a lot of planets, so maybe somewhere else life can form too. Can God put life there? Yeah, sure it can. Why not? The question comes, of course, when you have intelligent life, life that can reason. Reason being one of the attributes of God. How does that... So how do the intelligent slime creatures of Arcturus free? Um, how do they relate to salvation history? One of the things we have to say as Christians at the start is that the slime creatures of Arcturus III, if they are saved at all, and if they have immortal souls, I hope they are, if they are saved at all, they are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They may never know him. They may never know that this planet exists. But it is the death and resurrection, the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which saves. Now, some people, I'm sure, I'm picking on Stephen Hawkins, I shouldn't do that. Um, let's say Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Richard Dawkins would say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, how can our little backwater of a planet, not so much a backwater, but anyway, it's what our little backwater of a planet, something that happened in an obscure Roman province, affect the whole galaxy. Well, if you've gone to uh, Rome and said, oh, by the way, there's this itinerant preacher in Palestine who is actually going to revolutionize the whole world and say, all of you people who are going to be saved are going to be saved through his him. That was going to be ridiculous. Some stupid little place in Palestine and some preacher is not even educated in any of the proper universities. <coughs> if you'd gone to Athens, in fact, Paul did go to Athens. And this, exactly this happened. Saying, oh, by the way, there's this guy who was crucified as a criminal and he's God who was saviour of the world. And people in Athens are going to come and let's get real. Okay, it's the same thing. It's not how important you are in the world or in the galaxy. That's not what made Jesus' life and death important. What made his life and death important was that he was God incarnate. And if God was to become incarnate in his creation, he had to come somewhere. And he came here. 
it's kind of the reverse of the, the complaint. You say life is here because this planet is, can support life because life is here. Well, this planet can support life. God became incarnate here because he had to be somewhere and he came here. So I don't know the salvation history of the of the salvation story of the slime creatures of Arcturus 3. Actually, I don't think there is an Arcturus 3. But anyway. um, I don't know this, but I do know this, that if they are saved, they are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we ever encounter them, we will have an interesting conversation with them. <laughs> On all of this, though, I am tempted to, as my final resort on alien life, to go back to St. Augustine. And someone once asked St. Augustine, what about centaurs? Are centaurs saved? To which St. Augustine replied, show me one and I'll tell you. <laughs> so that's my final resort on alien life. But I'd like to finish off now with a, um, a reading from Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the firmament tells of his handiwork. Day unto day pours, pours forth speech, and night unto night declares knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All of this worth of ours, all of this universe of ours, proclaims the glory of God simply because of its creation. And we are a part of that creation. We are the part of that creation that is aware, that knows God and can love God. And that, see, far from being insignificant, this is the whole purpose of creation, is so that we can come and do this. The whole purpose so that we can be here and God can enter into his creation here. Because here is where it can happen. Here is where it's possible for it to happen. There's one, I thought, you know, you can actually learn a lot about an artist. If you go down to the art gallery, you can learn a lot about an artist by looking at their artwork. You can learn more about the artist if you read the program notes on the art or read the little inscriptions down the bottom of the pictures. You can know a lot more about the artist if you meet the artist in person. With God, we look at his creation, at his artwork, and we can learn a lot about God from looking at his artwork. We can learn more about him by reading the scriptures and we can come to know him personally and find out who he is and his relationship to us 
person. And as McConaughey said, he is the one who loves us as if we were the only one to love. So, billions of galaxies, he loves us as if we were the only one to love. especially my friends and even as a teacher my students they say I'm more of a science person than a religious person um, whereas your knowledge is such a gift to the church um, and I feel like it's kind of the battles that we face um, in talking about our faith is um, when talking about science versus faith and not many people know that they're so compatible um, so thank you so much um, I know that I got so much out of that and some shivers down my spine thinking that out of all the universe I'm God knows me so personally, so it's very special um, to hear you talk. So thank you, thank you.